The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, May the 4th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The physics of jumping to hyperspace. Disney teases their retractable lightsaber and more Star Wars Day updates. Plus, in real space news, China launched the first module of their Chinese space station into orbit last week. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So for the last 10 years, Rhett Allen over at Wired has been celebrating May the 4th by analyzing the physics of some element from Star Wars, and this year's installment focuses on hyperspace, or specifically the act of using hyperdrive to jump to light speed and the reaction you can expect inside a ship when you do. The scene Alan chose to focus on is from Empire Strikes Back when Leia, Lando, Chewbacca, Luke, R2-D2, and an injured C-3PO slung in a bag over Chewbacca's shoulder like someone trying to sneak a golden retriever onto the subway while technically following the MTA's dogs only and carriers rule are escaping Imperial forces on Bespin in the Millennium Falcon, but the Imperials disabled the hyperdrive that would have enabled the light speed they needed to get out fast enough. Fortunately, R2-D2 was in touch with the Bespin Central computer, and while everyone else quibbles and Darth Vader plays mind games with Luke, R2-D2 fixes the hyperdrive, and they're immediately vaulted into hyperspace. And for all his effort, R2 is flown backwards down a hatch. That fall, as well as the reactions from the others, is key to analyzing the physics of this scene and jumping to hyperspace in general. Quoting Wired, When the starship makes the jump to hyperspace, it's as though R2 was on a turbocharged bus when the driver hits the gas and he's not seatbelted in. If we take the inside of the bus as the reference frame, then we will need to add a fake force to account for the acceleration. I mean, it's not necessarily a fake force. According to Einstein's equivalence principle, there's no difference between an accelerating reference frame and a gravitational force. So in the reference frame of the accelerating Falcon, there appears to be a gravitational-like force that pushes in the opposite direction as the acceleration. The magnitude of this force on R2 would be equal to his mass multiplied by the acceleration of the spaceship. If R2 has completely frictionless wheels, or at least very low friction, then as the Falcon accelerates forward, he would accelerate backwards with respect to the ship's frame." End quote. So the next step is measuring R2's acceleration with respect to the inside of the spacecraft. So here Alan uses the known height of R2-D2 and the size of the Falcon, along with the frame rate of the film, to get a plot of position versus time. He calculates that R2 is moving back with an acceleration of around 4.78 meters per second squared. Quoting again, That means that the Falcon should be accelerating in the forward direction with the same value, but of course it's not. There's no way it could make the jump to hyperspace with such a small acceleration. 
Obviously, there's some type of inertial dampeners that compensate for the motion of the spacecraft. Otherwise, every jump to hyperspace would kill everyone inside as they all got flung to the back of the vehicle. And yes, I borrowed the inertial dampeners term from Star Trek. I don't think they ever actually mentioned them in Star Wars. End quote. So Alan suggests another way to look at the acceleration inside the Millennium Falcon. Not with R2's response, but with Luke and Leia's in the cockpit. They also get thrown backwards, and you can see the floor tilting back as well. Alan says that since the fake force due to acceleration is pushing backwards, it's basically the same thing as an inclined plane. So, he calculates the effective tilt angle of the Falcon as it jumps to hyperspace. Quoting again, There are actually two fake forces inside the ship. First is the backwards-pushing force that's parallel to the ground. This is due to the forward acceleration of the starship. The second fake force is the one that pushes down towards the floor of the Falcon. I guess this is due to some type of artificial gravity that is beyond my understanding, but very useful when filming a movie that takes place in space. These two forces can be combined into a single net fake force that is angled downwards and backwards. The angle this net force makes with respect to the floor is very similar to the components of a real gravitational force down an inclined plane. In fact, if you were R2-D2, it would seem just like the spaceship is stationary and tilted up at an angle. I'm going to assume that the floor-pointing artificial gravity, F1, is just like on Earth, with a magnitude of mass of the object, R2-D2, multiplied by the gravitational field of G equals 9.8 meters per second squared. The horizontal force, F2, will be the mass of R2 multiplied by the acceleration of the Millennium Falcon. From these two forces, both of which I know, I can calculate the effective tilt angle. With my value of the Falcon acceleration, I get an incline of 26 degrees. End quote. Now, Alan says that based on his measurements, the floor leans back 6 degrees in the cockpit, which doesn't match the acceleration of R2-D2. And if we're going to get real, real-world physics, that's just fine because the two were completely different shots. For R2, they probably tilted the floor in the studio and just let the droid fall backwards. For Luke and Leia in the cockpit, Alan guesses they tilted it a bit in the studio, but not as drastic as his 26-degree calculation, so they sped up the film and used the magic of acting to make it look more dramatic. And what can you do with all of this information? Probably nothing. But hey, it was kind of fun to consider, and unless you're a scientist, I bet you haven't thought about the Earth's gravitational acceleration constant in years, so you're welcome. Happy Star Wars Day. Alright, so in actual stars, but hopefully not wars, news, China officially launched the first module of their Chinese space station into orbit last week. The Tianhe, or Harmony of the Heavens, module lifted off around 11 p.m. Eastern on April 28th from the Wenchang spacecraft launch site and is the first of three modules that will form the T-shaped space station by the end of 2022. No astronauts were on board, but three of them will be joining in June after cargo is delivered this month. The Chinese space station will be about a fifth of the size of the International Space Station and only be able to house three astronauts as opposed to the nine maximum on the ISS. The CSS will be the only other fully operational space station in orbit, but Russia has been saying that they want to launch their own in 2030 after leaving the ISS in 2025. The CSS has been in the works for a decade and already has a full calendar of experiments ready and waiting. Quoting Smithsonian Magazine, 
In total, six international and collaborative experiments have been approved to take place aboard the CSS. One project, for example, focuses on the effects of microgravity on tumors, with a specific focus on whether microgravity can stop or slow the growth of cancer cells, reports Scientific American. Others will observe phase changes of liquids and gases in microgravity to improve cooling technology in space or even in laptops here on Earth. The collaborative research effort includes scientists in Norway, the Netherlands, France, and Belgium. End quote. No experiments in collaboration with the U.S., however, as Space.com points out, quote, U.S. law prohibits NASA and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy from cooperating with their Chinese counterparts on space-related activities unless Congress has granted approval of such cooperation in advance. This prohibition, which has been in place since 2011, is known as the Wolf Amendment after its champion, former Representative Frank Wolf. And China is not a partner in the ISS Consortium, which is led by the space agencies of the U.S., Russia, Europe, Japan, and Canada. End quote. China is also working on a powerful space telescope similar to the Hubble that will accompany the CSS, quoting Scientific American. The China Sky Survey Telescope, also called the Shuntian, will have 300 times Hubble's field of view and will address a wide range of science in the near-ultraviolet and optical wave bands. The observatory will investigate cosmology, the large-scale structure of matter in the universe and galaxy and stellar science, as well as dark matter and dark energy. It's designed to dock with the space station for servicing if needed, offering an easy, fuel-efficient, and better way to engage astronauts to ensure the performance of the telescope, says Zhu Yidong, chief scientist of the China Manned Space Program. End quote. It'll be cool to watch the development of another space station, especially with a potential third one on the way by the end of the decade. I do wonder a bit about these growing tensions and the reluctance of various national space agencies to work together. As Trisha LaRose, a medicine researcher at the University of Oslo who is leading the experiment on microgravity and tumors, put it, quote, Cancer knows no boundaries, and looking for better cancer treatment benefits everyone in every country on Earth. When are we going to stop looking at our differences and start focusing on our similarities? End quote. So Disney has just dropped their first official look at their real lightsaber, which, you know, is still not actually real, but apparently we're going to call it real because it is closer to replicating a lightsaber than the last greatest advancement a decade and a half or so ago with the polycarbonate sabers that make the noises when you move them. Unlike those ones, which have their blades out like a sword all the time, the big innovation Disney teased today is a retractable lightsaber. In the promo video, you'd be mistaken for assuming it's just the same CGI'd lightsaber used in the movies, but it's an actual, physical, functioning object. The illuminated blade extends out from the hilt, just like in the movies, except, you know, the blade isn't made of light that could slice your hand off. The new sabers were first seen on April 8th, when Disney Parks chairman Josh Damaro pulled one out at the end of a presentation. No video exists of that moment, but fans quickly resurfaced a 2018 Disney patent for a, quote, sword device with retractable, internally illuminated blade. VR developer Ben Radau explained and animated the patent so people could understand it better. The Verge summarized, quote, 
According to the patent, the lightsaber's blade consists of two spools of translucent material that lie flat when fully wound, like a tape measure inside its reel. When each ribbon is shot out the end, it curves into a semicircle that forms one half of the blade. They're permanently mounted to a rounded lightsaber tip that also pulls along a string of flexible LEDs that's mounted on a third motorized spool inside the lightsaber's frame. The two halves of the blade get zipped together by a blade form as they exit the lightsaber, creating a single lightsaber beam, end quote. And as for when you can get your hands on one, well, it will probably be a while. Disney World cast members portraying Star Wars characters will probably be the first to carry the prototypes, and next up will be visitors at Disney's Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, which is actually what the lightsaber teaser was part of an announcement for. The highly anticipated Star Wars Hotel was supposed to open this year, but is being delayed until 2022. And the Galactic Star Cruiser thing, by the way, is so weird. To me, anyways. Disney calls it all immersive and not storytelling, but story living. io9 described it back in 2019 as like a cruise, but you don't actually go anywhere. Which is basically true. You check in for two days and two nights, you get put on a launch pod that takes you to the ship that you'll stay on while traveling through space. All of the offerings to fill up your two days sound like typical cruise ship fare with added lightsabers, but again, you're just inside some building somewhere in Orlando, and all the windows are probably screens showing fake scenes of space. I mean, it sounds kind of cool, but also really bizarre. But anyways, visitors to the Galactic Star Cruiser will get the first look at the new retractable lightsabers up close, if and when they ever sell these to the public, and I mean, the mouse loves the dollar, so I'm sure they will, they'll probably cost upwards of $200, given that's the current price point from Disney for their existing high-end lightsabers. And two more quick Star Wars things for you to round out your May the 4th. My friends, Star Wars band Blue Milk Run just dropped their annual Star Wars Day single. This one's called Ben, and it's all about Kylo Ren, a.k.a. Ben Solo's complicated relationship with the light and dark sides. Here's a quick listen. Well, I guess you may have heard by now I couldn't shake my past Yeah, I'm back with my mask But it's cooler now, so I glued up the cracks So who's laughing last? In the middle of grade, I cried more, more, more But the rebels held even more, more, more My name is Ben, it's not Kylo Ren anymore My mama hit the floor, she's saving me, I'm a solo I'm going wherever you go in my mind I said, Dad Link to listen and buy that song and all of Blue Milk Run's discography, including Han Shot First and Rebellions Are Built on Hope, is in the show notes. And finally, if you just want a little joy in your day, Preeti Chibber, author of, among other things, the A Jedi You Will Be picture book, has been tweeting a day in the life of Baby Yoda. Her Baby Yoda action figure has had a pretty typical day so far, made some iced coffee, checked some emails, waited on a package delivery, but the photos are honestly more entertaining and adorable than they have any right to be, 
I don't know what it is about them that works so well, but it does. The force is just strong with this one. So link to Baby Yoda's Day in the Life thread is in the show notes. So Alan Moore, the writer of Watchmen, V for Vendetta, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and much more, and who officially retired from writing comic books two years ago, has just announced a massive book deal with UK publisher Bloomsbury. He will be releasing a short story collection called Illuminations in the fall of next year, and a five-book fantasy series. It's called Long London, and quoting The Guardian, The series will move from the shell-shocked and unraveled London of 1949 to a version of London just beyond our knowledge, encompassing murder, magic, and madness. Bloomsbury said it promises to be epic and unforgettable, a tour de force of magic and history. History, end quote. His last novel, Jerusalem, was a honking a thousand pages, so this quintet will probably be pretty hefty as well. If you're an Alan Moore fan, this is excellent news. Who wants to put bets on which epic fantasy series will get finished first? This yet-to-be-published work from Moore or George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire? <laughs> pretty safe bet on Moore, probably. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.